0: Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, we talk to Dr. Steve Dubey. Uh, Steve teaches at Grand Canyon University. We talk today about his book, God and Himself, particularly talking about the relationship between theology and metaphysics, divine simplicity, and why that matters for the church and how we think about it in terms of reading scripture. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Steve. This episode is brought to you by B&H Academic. You can go to BHacademic.com to find out about all of their latest offerings and textbooks. We're also brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. You can go to csbible.com to find out about that English translation. And now my conversation with Steve Doobie, but first, no big I'm joined today by Steve Doobie. Steve, how are you today? Doing fine, thanks. I'm glad you're on the podcast. Uh, we've been circling this one for a little while. We've canceled on each other multiple times. so I'm glad it finally worked out. Yeah, we're here. So, uh, What I want to talk about today particularly um, is your book, God and Himself uh particularly about uh divine simplicity and metaphysics and some of these things i think you've written uh my favorite introduction to the idea of simplicity why it matters the implications of it those kind of things um in ways that i think you know you wrote your uh, TNT Clark was that your dissertation the one you did for TNT Clark yeah that's right that's right yeah. so that one that one is uh, mercifully short for a TNT Clark dissertation
1: <laughs> i'm glad to hear that that's
0: <laughs> Now, on this one, I mean, this one is actually, it's funny, this one's actually a little thicker. Typically, dissertations are the ones that are thicker, but it looks like you, um, you know, in reading the two, and you can tell me if this is wrong, but it seems like with your IVP version that we're talking about today, it seemed like you were able to um, work out a lot of the implications for other doctrines and stuff like that. Is that right? Yeah, that was part of it. I wanted to talk about the doctrine
1: of God in itself um, and then dig into some of the things that lie beneath that, but then also some of the ways that that gets fleshed out in relation to other things including something like Christology a little bit.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's do just sort of a, a softball question here. Um, when we talk about it, this book isn't only about simplicity, but that's certainly some of the foundation for, for what you're talking about. So um, let's just talk through a little bit of a definition of divine simplicity, uh, why it matters, why we should care about it. Just sort of a, a basic intro. Take as long as you want to, to talk through that. Yeah. Thanks for asking.
1: So I would summarize divine simplicity at first by saying that it is the the teaching that God is not composed of parts, which is a negative statement, and it also has positive content as well. When we talk about God not having parts, of course, God does not have a body and soul like we do. God is uh, incorporeal, uh, but it goes beyond that as well. Um, God's essence, his existence, his attributes are not really distinct things or distinct parts that come together to make up who or what he is. So if we take something like an attribute um, such as wisdom or goodness, in a human being, wisdom, for example, is a quality that gets added to our human nature. It's possible to develop it. It's possible, I suppose, even for someone to lose that, at least to some degree. But with God, to be God just is to be perfectly wise. It just is to be perfectly good. One of the reasons for upholding this teaching is that um, as Christians, we believe God is the ultimate one. There's nothing behind God or before God that would determine who or what God is. And there's, there's no one that could have put God together. Some people might go from there and say, well, maybe it's just the case that these divine attributes just necessarily hold together. And even then, I would want to say, I don't think that there's a broader system of necessity or contingency that we should think holds God together Mm -hmm. in any way. We can also connect divine simplicity to the doctrine of the Trinity. And say that instead of the Father, Son, and Spirit being three parts that come together to make up a greater divine whole, actually, uh, the whole divine essence um, exists or subsists in Father, in the Son, in the Spirit. So these are three persons, but not parts. And from there, if we really get into detail, we could also talk about how um, that does not exclude the distinctions a certain kind of distinction, uh, between father and son and son and spirit and so forth regarding how, how important it is. Obviously not every Christian is going to hear this discussed explicitly. And there's part of me that says that's okay, but there's also part of me that says when the opportunity comes, it is, it is good, and helpful for people to be able to think through this. One of the important things I think is that it shows that the, that, that The God that we worship um, doesn't have anything greater than him, doesn't depend on anything else to be who he is, and doesn't depend on anything else that would determine how he acts. So I think there is a doxological um, implication there. Another another pastoral implication for the Christian life is that God's attributes um, can't be separated or played off against one another. So whatever God does, it will always be characterized by his wisdom, His goodness his righteousness and so forth which i think is a really encouraging thing for us as believers
0: yeah and that that leads into something else that i really uh appreciated about the book you know you talk about um the relationship between metaphysics and the economy uh, of god so oftentimes we think of and you bring this up we think of metaphysics as kind of these things out here that we don't really see or don't know or don't know what to do with and you talk a lot about how actually this conversation about god and himself and about metaphysics um, is displayed or can be learned or can be seen, uh, through the economy in certain ways. So maybe talk through a little bit between the relationship there between, uh, metaphysics and economy, uh, and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There, there has been a tendency in at least some circles to say that, well, any talk about God and himself that doesn't automatically or immediately refer to the incarnation, um, and to the accomplishment of our salvation, that can't be something that's been learned from, within the economy of salvation or from the Bible? And I would want to say no. Um, Obviously, God reveals himself in the context of the economy and in scripture, but from within that very revelation of himself, we can learn at least something of of who or what God is in himself. Obviously, we never comprehend God. Um, We never fully comprehend God, but um, from within the context of the economy, we learn truth about God and himself and then, when it comes to metaphysics, it's not that we take a philosophical discipline and say, "Okay, now that gets to determine whatever it is we might say about God and Himself." Instead, it's a matter of using certain tools that metaphysics can offer us in the task of theology. In the book, I've tried to say that in our description of God and Himself, um, we're not being—we don't have to be dominated by the usual meanings of metaphysical terms and that sort of thing. Actually, the discipline of metaphysics, its object is being um, finite or created being. So it can teach us certain things um, that are helpful to say in the doctrine of God, but it's not that the the object or the terminology of metaphysics passes over in a totally straightforward way into our descriptions of God himself. So um, if we take something like, essence uh, which is something that's treated in metaphysics but it's also something that we can use in the doctrine of god essence is typically something that a created being has it participates in essence um, no one human being is all the fullness of of humanity Uh, but in god's case god doesn't have to start participating in deity Um, this god is all that there is to deity so when we talk about god's essence. We have to to adapt that in some way to our particular descriptions in theology proper. So I suppose what I want to say is uh, life within the economy, God's revelation in the economy, it teaches us certain things about God and himself. Sometimes that's been associated with so-called metaphysical thinking, but that's not quite right. We're learning it from divine revelation, and then we are adapting metaphysical concepts to a particular task of describing the God who actually transcends created being. There's quite a bit there, but I think that if we put it together well, we're in a good position to honor what Scripture teaches and then also try to explain that as clearly as we can.
0: Yeah, and that's the interesting thing. You know, when you think about God revealing himself in general, he's already condescending uh, to us. He's already using analogy. And so how do we think through that? You know, one of the questions that, that I get when I'm teaching the Trinity um, with students, for example, is, You want to talk about the father-son as, in some sense, an analogy, although it's revealed, it's concrete at the same time. Uh, We want to talk about, you know, subordination and some of those kind of concepts and trying to avoid... Taking the analogies too far, which is what basically every ancient heretic did, right? Was, was too smart for their own good. Uh, so how do, we, how do we think through that? You know, I think what you're saying there is helpful, but then uh, what are the dangers of where we start blurring those lines, where we start saying uh, the economy is the ontology or something like that? And how do we work through what's analogy, what's not analogy? How do we not, you know, how do we keep the creator creature distinction? All those kind of questions that come up. What are some basic principles you'd say?
1: Yeah, my sense is that when we talk about something like analogy, um, of course, we cannot help but think um, and speak with our ordinary language. We're human beings. That's what we have to work with. But as we use that language um, and as we read God's revelation in that ordinary language in the Bible, we do learn certain things about the creator-creature distinction, as you as you mentioned. So we learn that um, you know, God doesn't depend on anyone else. God is uncaused, God is infinite and so forth. And even though we started out thinking about that with our ordinary language, I think knowing those things then pushes us to circle back to our understanding of the very language itself. And it chastens our sense of how this language works. We can look then at an ordinary term like uh, essence or an attribute of God like wisdom or, or goodness. Or we can talk about the names of the divine persons, father and son, for example, and begin to think, okay, the content of God's revelation somehow will have to um, make us adjust our understanding of exactly how these concepts apply to God. I would want to say that all of our, all of our, um, language about God is analogical. I don't think that there is um, an underlying uh, body of univocal language that we need in order to get truthful analogical descriptions off the ground. So I think all of our our, um, applications of words to God like wisdom or goodness are analogical. Uh, However, sometimes uh, those applications of words uh, to God are literal. And then sometimes they're metaphorical, so it's always an analogical. But that doesn't need to be confused with with metaphor. Analogy can encompass both literal speech and uh, metaphorical speech. And I think actually some people that despair over uh, the the claim that all of our all of our talk about God is analogical, they may be confusing that claim with the claim that all of our talk about God is metaphorical, which would yeah. be more difficult to work with, it would be more difficult to move from that toward an explanation of how we still truly do know God as human beings. Your question could have been taken in a number of directions. And if I didn't take it in the best one, that's fine. But that's where my mind went.
0: No, I'm happy for you to take it in whatever direction it lands uh, on you with. Um, Yeah. you know, one of the things thinking through this is, for example, you talked about, you know, metaphor and analogy. The father-son language, for example, you know, obviously Arius took it too far to say, well, if he is a son, he must be created because that's how father-son relationships work or something like that, uh, or an incarnation, thinking through those kind of things. So how do you think through uh, the eternal relations of origin versus what we see in the economy? How do we think through the fact that they are father and son, and yet it's not the same way we think about it? Um, How do those things relate? What's some ways that you just talk through uh, that relationship?
1: Yeah. Well, the terms father and son, as they're used in the biblical canon, they certainly do mean something. So we have to be careful not to empty them out of their content right. and sound like "father." the name father is arbitrarily attached to one person. The name son is arbitrarily attached to another. So there is, there is something meaningful in those terms. At the same time, there are certain uh, things that we know about God that push us to... Um, reflect on how, how we might need to adapt our, our sense of those terms to the unique subject matter of God. So I would say, for example, uh, if God does not have a body, obviously we're talking about God with regard to his Godness, not God, the son with regard to his humanity, but if God um, as God does not have a body, then we would not want to say that the father through some bodily process um, produced the son that's off the table. Um, insofar as the three divine persons share one will, uh, one freedom, then uh, we would not want to take the ordinary father-son dynamic of, of commanded submission and push that back into the eternal relationship between God the Father and God the Son. There are certain biblical texts, of course, that uh, talk about the Son obeying the Father. I definitely think we can adequately account for those by the fact that the Son is not only God, but also man with a human will. There are um, also some texts I'm thinking especially of John chapter 5 in the biblical canon that alert us to the fact that the Son has the same freedom as the Father. So in John chapter 5, in a text where it's clear that Jesus is doing what the Father wants him to do, in John 5.21, Jesus actually also says that, He gives eternal life to whomever he wills, just like the Father. So that makes me think: okay, I cannot say that the Father um, made the Son go forth to accomplish this work of salvation. It can be a long process trying to put everything together, but I do think that the whole of scriptural revelation of of the divine persons presses us to um, say that you know eternal command eternal submission is not not included uh, in God's eternal life. But at the same time, going back to a text like John chapter 5, in verse 26, the father uh, gives to the son to have life in himself. On the one hand, that could be something taken to uh, concern the son's human life or just his economic office. but if that's a life that if that's a life by which the son can raise the dead by his mere speech, I'm thinking that is a divine life that the Father has given to the Son. Uh, there are also other texts in John um, John 6, uh, 46, John 7, 29, where the Son comes forth from the Father in such a way that he has comprehensive knowledge from the Father. Um, and I think from those texts, we do see that there is a relation of fromness that does apply to the eternal son and his relation to the father, which then I think confirms for us, there is some aspect of a father-son relationship as we know it, that is applicable here. The father um, uh, in God's eternal life is the one from whom the son comes forth and the son is the one who comes forth from the father. There are many ways in which that's distinct from our human father-son relations but there also is still something to the father being called the father and the son being called the son.
0: Yeah, I think I'm trying to remember who said it. It was one of the church fathers. Maybe many of them said it, but there's something to the effect of um, it is fitting for the son to be the one who is sent because he's always been son. Of course, that doesn't then mean that there is a gradation of attribute, divinity, authority, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I think it's fair to say that the structure of the economy of salvation does reveal something of the, the the you know the order of the divine persons. It's just that we always have to be
0: careful not to push every dynamic of the economy back into God's own eternal life. Yeah, um, one of the things I really maybe my favorite chapter in the book, chapter three, incarnation in context, uh, Christology's place in theology proper. I thought that was really helpful because you do um, such a good job of of keeping this in my opinion, at least, keeping this dynamic uh, where you don't say too little or too much. You're not uh, pushing everything up, but you're not wanting to make such a distinct distinction between ontology and economy and God in himself and God revealed in Christ. And you do a good job, I feel like, of balancing those two things and really sharpened me and helped me a lot. So maybe maybe talk through a little bit, uh, kind of one of the lines you use here, uh, how you set up the chapter, you say... uh, we will broaden the look of Christ's role in the communication of theological knowledge, considering the sense in which Christ is the source of our theology, even before the incarnation, and the sense in which the manifestation of God's glory in Christ is central to the fulfillment of God's plan to our theological knowing. So that sort of distinction there, what he did before and after and how that pulls together, talk through that a little bit. Yeah,
1: in that chapter, I wanted to emphasize that while the incarnation is the supreme revelation of God, it's also not the chief or the only um, starting point for our knowledge of God. So that was that was an attempt to strike a balance and and hopefully the chapter was able to work that out at least to some degree. Um, When we think about um, knowledge of God that does not have immediate reference to the Incarnation, I would want to say that that is from uh, still from God's own self-revelation. That knowledge still comes from God's own self-revelation. And all three divine persons are involved in doing that revealing. So it's not as if um, when we take a step back for a second from the incarnation, we are excluding the son. Not at all. The father, son and spirit are the ones doing the revealing, whether we are looking specifically at the incarnation or whether we are looking at the works of God in nature or whether we are looking at um, pre-incarnation biblical texts as well. I think of uh, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12, I believe. Um, the Spirit of Christ is the one working in the prophets. So it's not as if Christ was not revealing (laughs) during the Old Testament era. He's always been involved in doing the revealing. But then when uh, God the Son does take on human flesh, that is the climactic moment of divine revelation. So in that chapter, I wanted to say the incarnation is not everything when it comes to our knowledge of God. And yet, In pushing back against that, it's also uh, inappropriate to minimize what the Incarnation offers us. The Incarnation provides us with the wonderful knowledge of God's love and mercy. And of course, um, at some point in that chapter, um, I tried to say the Incarnation itself helps us understand that the Incarnation is not all that there is to God. Because the scriptural revelation, the scriptural account of the Incarnation presupposes that there is a divine person already complete in his divinity and in his eternal relation to the father. And it is precisely because that person has the divine fullness already that the incarnation is so significant. It is so striking. John chapter one, of course, is a great chapter dealing with the incarnation, but it starts out with the fact that the word already was with God, the father, and already was true God. Uh, I know that, um, 2 Corinthians eight, nine, I think also comes up in that chapter, um, you know, Christ became poor so that we could be rich. And Paul's logic suggests there that it really matters that Christ already was, already was rich, um, which I think has connections to divine aseity. Putting all of that together then I think, I think it's important to say because God is ase because God has eternal plenitude in himself that's exactly why the incarnation matters and that has pastoral and ethical implications for us because um, paul for example in second corinthians uh, 8 is using christ's example there as a a motivation for us to go out and serve other people so while the incarnation it gives us the highest revelation of god um we have to be careful how we, how we think about that, how we, how we use that doctrine, um, because it's, it's easy to slip into talking as if the incarnation, um, was more of the same when in fact the incarnation represents, uh, the assumption of human flesh, the beginning of, of a human life that is radically different, radically distinct from, what God, the son has always had in his divinity.
0: So what do you, yeah. One of the things that, that I, I even struggle with is teaching it, just trying to work through it, trying to, you know, it's always a hard thing to go from, uh, you know, ETS article uh, academic paper to like teaching an undergrad, you know, type of thing. I know you do some of the same things that, where you're at at Grand Canyon. Um, How do you help students think through, uh, or people, MDiv students, whatever, who are trying to, to work through some of this, think through the implications of the incarnation for us, because we can, I think we can extreme one way and say, well, it's Jesus is God in the flesh. We can't do anything he does or follow him in any meaningful way. Uh, There's the other side, which is just sort of the moral, you know, just, just, he's the example of morals, do what he does. How do you work through that in terms of particularly um, the communication of attributes with him in the hypostatic union, the fact that he is God in the flesh, uh, he is impeccable, but at the same time, he is a man who he has called, follow me, take my example, uh, suffer as I suffer. How do you work through some of that?
1: Yeah, that's a big question. Um, when it comes to connecting those thoughts to things that, that everyday Christians will truly care about or when it comes to helping undergraduate students or, or graduate students see how this, this matters for um, Christian life and ministry, my mind does go pretty quickly to the book of Hebrews. And I, I listened to your podcast recently on uh, Hebrews, uh, talking with Madison Pierce about that. And in Hebrews, obviously, we get a grand vision of the divine son in Hebrews chapter one. Uh, but then pretty quickly in Hebrews chapter two, I'm thinking, especially of verses 14 to 18, there is such a strong emphasis on the genuine humanity of Christ. In Hebrews two seventeen and 18, um, in order to help us, he had to be made like us. And that is something that I think is very powerful for the average Christian to try to think about and try to apply to their own lives. In saying that uh, the Son truly is divine, we are not in any way threatening the authenticity of his humanity and vice versa. Uh, divinity just is not something that could be threatened by the assumption of a human nature. And the assumption of a human nature, is just not something that could be compromised by the divinity of Christ. Uh, divinity and humanity are just not in the same order of being, and they are they are not a threat to each other in this case. So that leaves lots of room for us to talk through the genuine humanity of Christ and all that that, all that, that means for us and all the pastoral comfort and all of the ethical exhortation that can be drawn from that. Now, when it comes to thinking about um, the communication of properties and, and that sort of thing. It might be a cop out for me to say, well, I would just take a reformed rather than Lutheran approach. And I think that's an easier approach to take. <laughs> I tempted to say that, um, basically I would want to say that just as all of the perfections of God, um, omniscience, um, omnipotence and so forth, truly are predicated of the sun, um, so also with the human properties and experiences of Christ, those are truly predicated of one and the same person. That is uh, an extraordinary mystery, but um, he is not less human than he is God. He is, mm-hmm. he is truly and fully both. And <clears throat> one of the things that I think is, is helpful um, to bear in mind here is that Um, In our Orthodox Christology, we emphasize that the two natures are not confused with one another. They truly are uh, natures that constitute one person, but at the same time, the natures aren't confused. So we don't have to worry about, let's say, um, assimilating divine omniscience and human finite knowledge to each other. There's just not any reason to pull divine omniscience down into human ignorance, nor is there any reason to say that um, Jesus uh, as man must have been um, divinely omnipotent. We just don't have to play that game because um, divinity and humanity are not in competition with each other and that they don't have to be mixed into one another. Uh, We can go into the bases for those um, claims in, in Orthodox Christology, but taking them as principles for the moment, I do think they give us the resources that we need to uphold um, the divine transcendence of the Son, while also saying, and you know what, this same person is truly human with all that that means, except, um, uh, of course, without sin, as the author of Hebrews says.
0: Yeah, that's good. Um, so you have, a, an excursus, excursus, that's how you say that, right? I never had said excursus, we'll take, we'll say that's what it is. Um, <laughs> an excursus on Aquinas and the discovery of God and, um, natural theology and i thought that was a really interesting maybe it's an excursus because you really wanted it in there and the publisher thought you shouldn't is that what happened
1: it was it was an attempt to say this is going to get into the weeds pretty deeply and it may not contribute to the flow of thought for the average reader (laughs) so before the publisher says no you have to take this out i thought maybe i could just set this off somehow and uh make it its own little distinct thing for those who are actually interested
0: If you call it an excursus, then like the average reader is like, fine, I'll just skip that. I don't know what that is. Yeah, that's the (laughs) world. Or someone could read it if they're truly, truly interested. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I did enjoy it. I thought it was interesting. You know, Aquinas is such um, a—he's controversial in Catholic circles. He's controversial for same and different reasons for Protestants. You know, for Protestants, it's he is a Catholic and whatever. Um, But I thought it was really helpful the way that you drew drew in. Um, this understanding of God, this metaphysics and natural revelation and natu- natural theology and all this. So, I don't want to butcher uh, your beautiful excursus there. Uh, I really appreciate it. But if you could talk through that, I thought even just. Um, <clears throat> even just doxologically, like just being able to think through um, how God has sort of revealed himself and how we know him uh, and how we can actually pursue him uh, in the way that we, we seek to quote, as you said, kind of discovery of God, how we pursue to seek him. I thought it was much more than just a, a sort of historical treatment of Aquinas and really uh, maybe one of the, the parts that made me uh, want to love God and pursue him more. So uh, for an excursus, that's not bad.
1: No, I'll take that all day for an excursus. I really appreciate the encouraging words. Um, at that point uh, uh, in the book, I'm, I'm trying to lay out how Thomas understands natural knowledge of God. And in the excursus, I, I tried to dig in a little bit more on how um, our understanding of causation or of God causing uh, created being can lead us to a knowledge of God. For Thomas, um, he does say that there are you know, two ways um, that we can come to know God. One is a way of ascent where we are uh, looking at lower things, created beings and uh, following our way up to uh, God, the divine one who caused these things to be. And there really is knowledge of God to be had there. Uh, In Romans 1.20 um, the things that have been made teach us something of God's eternal power and deity. And we recognize as Christians that there are real limitations to that. Um, God's works in nature do not um, specifically tell us that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, or that the Father sent the Son, or that the Son is the Incarnate One for our salvation and so forth. But we do learn of God from those things. And Thomas also points out that um, there are not only limitations, but also uh, possible distortions that come in from, uh, from our sin and the way that that makes us want to deny uh, certain theological truths and I think that's important for us to bear in mind as we read Thomas Aquinass Protestants it's not that somehow uh, some very very recent Protestant thinker came up with the idea that sin has negative effects on the human <laughs> mind that's that's been on the table for many centuries yeah. and Aquinas recognizes that but he still would say there is, there is real, Uh, opportunity there to learn something about God and there is uh something there that establishes a a connection point for when we encounter God's supernatural uh God's supernatural revelation so the other way that Aquinas talks about um is uh, a way of descent and of course that is a matter of God coming down to us and, and revealing himself supernaturally and in that way God um clears up misunderstandings, reiterates some of the things that we ought to have been able to learn from uh, natural observation of the created order. And also that way helps people who are not in a position to do philosophy for hours and hours a day and see how the uh, causation of the world points us back to God. I think Thomas handles all of that really well. In that particular excursus, I think that there is a focus on um, our, our analysis of, of the concept of being, which might be something that that's um, too detailed to cover all at once right now. But I do think that um, Thomas's account of that suggests that when we're doing causal analysis and in, in natural theology, it's not that we have to take a finite concept of being and then extrapolate from that all that we should say about God. Mm -hmm. So there's a positive contribution there, but then also an attempt to say on behalf of Thomas, look, this sort of theologizing does not set up the kinds of things that made someone like Karl Barth feel really worried Mm -hmm. about natural theology.
0: Yeah, that's good. And I think uh, a little bit later, too, in, in your chapter, to whom will you compare me? We start talking about divine communication and transcendence. You quote Thomas there, a uh, really good quote where you say, uh, uh, to to participate in the divine life, to participate in what God is doing is to receive partially that which belongs to another holy. Which is such a good way to say that. And just quote Thomas if, you know, he's going to say it better anyway. Yeah, he'll
1: work through things for you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But um, talk through that a little bit in terms of participation. You know, that's that kind of language gets Uh, wrapped up in all kinds of, depending on what tradition you're in and what you think of theosis and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's got all kinds of implications. So what are you arguing for there and what's contribution you're trying to make there?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. There are people that absolutely love that language, um, people that love it, but then also take it in a direction that I might not think is the greatest direction. And then there are, are also people doing theology today that would get nervous about it, sometimes rightfully so, but in other cases, sometimes in a way that I don't think they need to be nervous about it because I think that there are responsible and pretty innocuous ways of understanding participation, not just innocuous, but helpful. Uh, But I say innocuous because I don't think it needs to make people nervous all of the time. Mm -hmm. Basically, in in that chapter, um, I've tried to say that when when God um, creates things, there is not another, template, there is not another exemplar that he looks to in order to get his ideas for creating things. So God himself is God's own template, if you want to put it that way, for um, created natures, all all of the different kinds of creatures that God has. So when God creates us, um, we will partake in finite ways, we will reflect in finite ways, something of the perfection that's there in God, and not some other source of perfection or goodness, because there is no other source of perfection or goodness. We have to be careful about how we say that, of course, because we don't want to make it sound like we are just an an extension of God's own being or or something like that. And I think that there are probably concerns people have about collapsing the creator-creature distinction and things, things along those lines. But I don't think that those things have to be um, a danger when we talk through this, because we can underscore the creator-creature distinction and say that no creature uh, part- partakes of or represents all that God is. It's, it's um, always the case that we are finite, with finite modes of being, so we reflect God only very, very faintly. But at the same time, we do reflect God. We can say that uh, various things in nature reflect God. We can say that human beings are made in the image of God, which is a clear connection point to talking about um, divine communication and our participation in God. And then we can also say that it's not only by nature, but also by supernatural grace that, that we partake of, of God and, w- and what God has to offer us. From there, uh, I I think that there are implications for our understanding of theological language because created things do reflect God in some finite way. That helps us to understand why we can use our ordinary human language and still, in a a small way, but in a truthful way, speak accurately about who God is.
0: Well, it's like you said, I mean, uh, if you want to talk about, I don't know, innocuous language, I mean, like somebody who might be really put off by divine participation is willing to say the spirit lives in you makes you more like christ that you are you are you are trying to become holy as god is holy like the sanctification language at the very least is a very innocuous way of divine participation right
1: yeah i would i would say so yeah and obviously ephesians 4 colossians 3 we have talk about being you know being being renewed in in god's image and second peter 1 4 we have talk about us becoming partakers of the divine nature i know that different scholars are going to interpret that differently but there is, there is maybe something to be said for explicit presence of participation language in the biblical text, and we could even connect that to the Lord's Supper in First Corinthians ten if we wanted to. Yeah,
0: if we wanted to. If we wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the, one of the uh, other really good contributions I think here is, and you've you've mentioned this as you've gone through sort of citing scripture and stuff, but you know the the tagline or the subtitle is Scripture, metaphysics, and the task of Christian theology, and. The other thing I so appreciate about this and about this series uh, that it's in, uh, the Studies in Christian Doctrine and Scripture series, is that on the one hand, you're dealing with these sort of high-level theological ideas, this doctrine of God, um, but I mean, you're you're saturating this with Scripture. I, I, I went through just sort of cursor cursorily, another word I can't say, um, and I think that I saw a quote on, of Scripture on almost every page, if not every couple of pages, I mean, at the very least. Um, yeah, <laughs> so... Um, that, and that's appreciated. You know, I, I'm not the type that thinks that you have to, um, you know, shoehorn Bible verses in everywhere to make sure that it looks like you're a Christian. Uh, I think you actually, it's just part of your methodology in a really helpful way. So, uh, thinking through this kind of as as we close out, um, where does the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of Revelation, kind of fit into our knowledge of God, the incarnation, the communication of? of the divine self and and all that kind of stuff. Where does scripture uh, kind of, where does that all fit into that bigger picture?
1: Yeah, I want to say that um, everything starts with God, which is an obvious thing to say, but but maybe it's not always so obvious or always kept in mind as we do theology. Everything starts with God and, and it's only because God chooses to reveal himself that we can know anything about God. But in saying that God always initiates, we don't have to leave out natural revelation or natural knowledge of God. God reveals himself both in um, natural things and then also supernaturally. So um, God reveals himself in, in the created order. Uh, but also from the very beginning, we see in the life of Adam and Eve, um, the knowledge of God available in the created order is complemented by God speaking in a supernatural way. And once the fall happened, once uh, human sin spread and it, it affected not only human will, but also the human mind, there are ways that that knowledge, uh, the natural knowledge of God becomes corrupt. And thankfully, God speaks through the prophets and, and ultimately produces um, revelation that is written down in, in the holy scriptures for us. Then, as Christians who have received that revelation, who believed in Christ, and then and then received um, the, the prophetic and apostolic uh, accounts, we are in a position to reason from Scripture, or to think and, and to reason from Scripture, so that that revelation uh, norms what we think about God, and it is especially helpful because it is uh, the, the biblical canon is is a is a. A field of divine revelation in such a way that it's just God telling us stuff and not leaving us to have to reason from one thing to another all the time, although reasoning from one thing to another is still acceptable. We do have the benefit, however, of God just telling us how it is. And that then I think um, suggest, it indicates that that scripture does need to be the norm of, of Christian theology, but scripture also sends us back out to look at the world more clearly and to be able to enjoy the revelation of god that's there and the magnitude and the beauty of the created order so in a way um natural knowledge of god comes first but then because it's limited and it's corrupted supernatural revelation of scripture comes in and and it mentors all of our thinking from there on about uh, about god and about god's revelation in the world then Uh, For systematic theology, which which is the primary discipline that I'm involved in, I don't have to take nature by itself and then try to extrapolate and infer some things about God. I actually take God's revelation in Holy Scripture as the foundation of theological claims. But along the way, I'm also free to comment on nature and and how God's God's works in nature help us in the first place to have language that can actually refer to God, which is a bit of a long answer, but I think that there is a, there can be a helpful back and forth between appreciating natural revelation and supernatural revelation in scripture.
0: Yeah, that's good. Uh, well, man, I'm so, I'm genuinely thankful for this book. I told you uh, off the air that I like this series generally, but this is, uh, to me my favorite and uh, the best one so far. Um, no offense no offense to Van Hooser and Trier who wrote the first one and who edited it. So. They're doing great things and they're overseeing the whole thing. So <laughs> I'm very, very grateful for all that they're doing. Yeah. So uh, what else you got working on? You have anything kind of coming down the pike soon that you're allowed to talk about? Yeah, that, that's fine. I'm happy to talk about it. Thanks for asking. The biggest
1: thing that I've been working on is a Christology project, and it will try to extend some of the things that I've that I've already been thinking about. The main goal is basically to connect the Bible's Christology to a more Uh, traditional Christian view of God, talking through how, if this Jesus is the highest revelation of God, why would we still want to talk about God being immutable or impassable or transcending time and those kinds of things? Mm. It's been a great learning experience, and Lord willing, I will hopefully have it wrapped up by the end of the year, but we'll see.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, the Bible says that we always should say, if the Lord wills, we will do this and that, but it seems like sometimes in writing in academia, it's a little bit extra.
1: Yeah, it, it underscores the point even more. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, well, Steve, thanks so much for being on, man. I really appreciate it, and uh, I'm really grateful for this book, God in Himself. Uh, people, go buy it. It's really good. If you want a doctrine of God that actually has the Bible in it, it's a place to go. Thanks for having me. <laughs>